And as you're seated, we're going to be looking at different places in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. So you can turn to the first pages in your Bible. And as you do, I want you to think about in 1905, the Daily News, which was the most popular daily newspaper in London, were running a series of articles entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And uh, everybody knew that something was wrong with the world, but there was disagreement on what. And so they would ask different public intellectuals and, you know, public figures to respond to the question, what's wrong with the world? And probably the most famous response was from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, when they sent the letter to him, he, his letter in response was, Dear Sirs, and then in bracket, what's wrong with the world, question mark? I am. Sincerely yours, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. And so, you know, very simple, what's wrong with the world, I am. You know, how would you answer that question? I think everyone agrees that there's something wrong with the world, but what would you say? Now, that's, kind of, that's a famous story, but what's not so well known is that G.K. Chesterton was a journalist, and, uh, well, what's coming to my mind is a long-winded. That might not be the best. Um, so two words were not good enough for the answer to that question, and five years later in 1910, he wrote a book that has, I think it's about 46 essays in it, and the title of the book is What's Wrong with the World? And then as he unpacks it, it is a marvel because you read it and you think, did he write this in 1910 or 2021? Uh, he talks about one of the problems with the world is that they're living at the moment. There's the greatest disparity that's ever been between the rich and the poor. He talks about how our families are falling apart. The schools are in utter chaos. Our basic freedoms are under assault. He talks about one of the core problems in the world is that men and women don't know what they're here for. Not purpose but they don't know what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. To kind of piggyback on Dan's uh, announcement, I'm excited to get our guys' nights going again. And we're, we chose the, the first Monday night of the month. We're going to experiment at Eagle Creek because that's burger night. So a $6 burger night. And then we chose at 7 to give all the men who have uh, young children, you can't completely get out of the bedtime routine. So 7, you can still help a little bit. And we'll talk about different things. And on this first one, one of the things we're going to talk about is if you remember when uh, in the last presidential election, uh, when our now President Biden was introducing his running mate, Kamala Harris. And as he was setting her up, he said, now everyone knows that uh, anything a man can do, a woman can do better. And then everybody cheered. And so I think, well, you know, is that true? Is it anything? Like, is there anything we can do? <laughs> that a woman can't do better? And so that's one of the things we're going to talk about. What are, we, what are we here for? Like, men, what good are you? What can you actually do? And so G.K. Church in 1910 said that's a problem where we don't know, like, why are we here? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? He says, not only are we all in the same boat, but we're all seasick in the boat. But what I find so fascinating about the book is he concludes that we all agree about the evil in the world. The real problem about what's wrong with the world is we no longer agree about what is the good. The main thing that is wrong with the world is that we don't ask what is right. And so we're going to do both those things this morning. We're going to look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and uh, ask, all right, what's wrong with the world? We are. 
What's right with the world? He is. It's a very simple sermon this morning. If you leave with nothing else, hearing that what's wrong with the world, we are what's right with the world, he is. And we're doing a series where we want you to experience the transforming power of the gospel. And the first phase to that is that you have to know that you've been created in love and called for a purpose. And then the second phase is you have to know, so we're spending the end of October and all of November thinking about how sin is trying to bind and break us. Bind and break. Last week we looked at Genesis chapter 3, how the serpent snuck in and struck. And then this week we're going to kind of take a broader overview to get some of the categories so we can move forward in the next couple uh, weeks. So this is, in one sense, this is going to be a pretty abstract uh, uh, message. We're going to give you three different kind of frameworks for understanding life and reality or kind of mental models. So it's going to be kind of abstract, but hang on there, uh, hang in there with me. And then the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll unpack it. And we're going to take some snapshots in each case. Because really, if we answer the question, what's wrong with the world? I mean, if your initial response is, oh, well, what's wrong with the world? It's the Florida Gators defensive coordinator. Or what's wrong with the world? It's the Democrats. Or what's wrong with the world? It's all the traffic on narcotics. You're not even in the right categories. So we got to think, all right, what are the categories we need to think of? And so the first thing I want you to see about the world is from Genesis 1, and we're going to look at the house that he builds in Genesis 1. And there's two things when he builds this house. The world is God's house that he's building, and it has a pattern, and then it has a plan. So just hear some of the echoes or some of the words from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. So there's the problem. No form, it's formless, and it's void, no life. So these are the two things that God has to deal with in Genesis chapter 1. He has to form something, and then he has to fill it with life. So you can see the pattern all through. Days 1, 2, and 3, he forms, and then days 4, 5, and 6, he begins to fill with life. So catch some of the echoes in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And he called the darkness night. And there was evening and the morning, the first day. So he creates this form, form of evening, morning, day, night. And then look in day four, he's going to fill it. He's going to fill it with the, the, the stars and the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. So he's going to fill it with, with life. Let's pick up in day six in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over. Now notice all oh, the over language. He's going to give him dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So you know, he creates these two things where the first cycle is he forms, and then he fills. And I just want you to think about how, in essence, you need both of those things in your life. Whenever God brings something into being that doesn't exist, he forms and he fills. Kind of as a church, we're in a stage trying to bring something into being that doesn't exist. First, you need form and structure. Then it needs to be filled with life. In general, Alistair Roberts has this kind of beautiful unpacking of Genesis chapter 1 where you can see kind of in general kind of echoes of how Christ is the primary one who's taking the lead in the forming and the construction construction and building. And there's echoes of the Holy Spirit who's the one who then fills with life. There's echoes in how men are created to form and women are created to fill with life. You can see these two things coming together in a beautiful harmony. And so we need both of those things. You need form, filling. You need structure and life. You need shape and energy. Kids, as you're walking around the neighborhood looking at all the, dire- uh, the decorations, you can look at Halloween and you can see things. What does it look like if you only have form but no filling? What are you? You're a skeleton. Now, what are you? If you have filling, you have life, but no form. What are you? You're a ghost. So you can see those in Halloween. You don't want to be a skeleton and you don't want to be a ghost. And so you need form and you need to be filled. So just think about your life. Like, is there an an absence of one of those? Do you have more spontaneity, energy, life without as much structure? Well, you need both. Do you have a lot of structure without as much spontaneity, life, energy? The house he builds, that's the pattern. He forms and then he fills. I think one of the things that was so hard about 2020 and the shutdown is what those things that give form and structure to life were all of a sudden just kind of dissolved. And so every day just melded into the next. So we need both. We need form filled. But now what next thing I want you to notice is he doesn't just have a pattern that he builds with. He has a plan. And the world is created as a three-tier world, a three-story universe. You can see it in the macro plan of the universe where you have the heavens, the earth, and the seas and under the earth. And then you can see it as he creates even on the earth. There's three different stories to God's house or three different tiers. Pick up and flip over to chapter 2 and let's pick up in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed. Now notice these two things. He formed the man of, of dust from the ground and then he breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. So two things. He forms, then he fills with life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. And it flows down. So you see this image. There's three different kind of tiers to how the Lord made the earth. You have the garden. The garden is not Eden. 
The garden is in Eden. The garden is at the top, the pinnacle of Eden. You have the garden, then you have Eden, and out of the garden flows four rivers that then flow to each of the corners of the earth to bring the life from the garden into the earth. So why does that matter? I mean, the garden is the original sanctuary. This is where God meets with Adam. This is where God, when he comes down out of heaven to earth, he comes into the garden. Now, the garden is not Adam's home. That's God's home. That's where God comes in. And then Eden is where Adam and Eve live. That's their home. And they're meant to guard it, protect it, to till it. And then you have the land out in the world, and it's their job to go out into the land, to explore it, to enjoy it, to unpack. That's why it gives all these kind of weird things where there's like, I don't even know how to pronounce these things, onyx and gold and other things. They're, they're, they're to go to mine them and to tap into the resources out into the world. But you have these three tiers. You have the garden where God dwells, Eden where they dwell, and then the world where they're supposed to go out and work. And one thing that's important as you go through Genesis, there's not just one fall. There's three different falls. So when Satan comes into the garden and they eat, they get exiled from the garden. And then with Cain and Abel and murder, Cain gets put out of Eden. And then wickedness spreads to the land and the flood comes to wash clean the land. But there's three different falls. That's why the ark is made with three different stories. And one of the fascinating things is you can walk through biblical history and every time kind of God is doing something unique, he's taking that three kind of tier world and he's slightly reshaping it. But there must be a place where God dwells. There's a place where his people dwell and there's a place where they work. They seek to expand and bring his kingdom into. So you can see it like after the Exodus when they're in the wilderness. Now the garden is transformed and now it's the tabernacle. And then Eden now is the camp, and they're strategically arranged with three tribes on each side to form a cross with the, the, the tabernacle at the very center. God dwells in the middle, they dwell around, and then the nations are out here. And then they move into the land with the tabernacle, and it gets put in Shiloh. And then now Eden gets transformed because it's no longer the camp, it's, the, it's Israel. It's where the 12 tribes settle. And then the world is, is the nations. And then when David comes along and builds the temple, now the, the, the garden, the tabernacle, is now made in a permanent place, and it becomes the city of Jerusalem. It becomes the, the location of where God and his king dwell. And then you still have the 12 tribes in the world. And then when the exile, this gets upended, and then now the, the garden, the location of where God dwells, he now embodies a flame of fire where he encompasses his people. And then we see when Jesus comes, it gets transformed again. Now he's the location of the garden. He's the unique place where God uniquely dwells on earth. And then once he ascends into heaven, it gets transformed again. Now believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're the unique place where God can dwell on the earth. And the church is that unique place that now is Eden, where his people come together and dwell together. And then the world is a place, the ends of the earth is where we're supposed to go out into. So you can see kind of this three-tier world helps you know what's wrong with the world. Well, which part are you talking about? 
Are you talking about the place where we're supposed to encounter God? Are you talking about the place where we're supposed to dwell together in harmony? Are you talking about the place where we're supposed to work and expand and cultivate? And actually, there's problems when sin comes in in all three places. So, sorry, I feel like that was a lot. We, we still try. So that, that's a lot of information. So good job. Hang, hang in there. Three different places. So he's got a pattern and he's got a plan. And then now notice the second thing we have work. So he comes in. So the, the first thing is like right, the house he builds, but then he gives us a job to do. He gives Adam and Eve a job. Hang on, I've gotten all twisted around up here. I've got to find my, get to where I am. So he gives them a job, and then look back in Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 7, 7, 8, 9. And then the Lord God formed him. He planted the garden, and out of the garden he made the, the Lord made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight, <clears throat> good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it, it, it flows. So that's what you see in 7 and 9. You see God at work. So God's doing work. And it's worth just thinking about and pausing, uh, one, how radical this would have been in this world and how important it is to help us understand our world. You know, God at work. He digs in the ground. You can underline all the things in Genesis chapter 2 where it says God does. He forms, he breathes, he plants, he places. He gets his hands dirty in the earth to garden and to build. And another kind of fascinating study, you run through the whole Bible and look at all the different images and metaphors it uses for God, God working. It often talks about God as a maker. And then one of the most common is that God is a shepherd or he is a potter or he is a builder, or a farmer. And I've got the references if you'd like to see all of these, all the different places where it talks about. Sometimes it talks about God as a, uh, he's a metal worker, or a tent maker. A lot of the words that are associated to what God does come from the, the domestic sphere. He's a knitter, he knits. So if you have a knitting hobby, you're, you're godlike in your actions. So he knits, he weaves, he makes clothes, he gardens, he house cleans. And these are all different images that are meant to bring meaning and dignity to our labor, our work. God works. He gets his hands dirty. You know, the Greco-Roman world, uh, manual labor was for slaves. It was not for free men or free women. And then here in the garden, it's dignifying all these types of work. God getting his hands dirty. And, you know, sometimes it's just hard to sit still. And so I, uh, we had a boy at our church in Kentucky who we loved because he had a hard time. You know, school is just hard for well, yeah, I was going to say it's hard for everyone. I don't know if it's hard for everyone, but it can be hard for little boys especially. Uh, having to sit still, not move, listen, that's a challenge. And they used to keep a shovel, uh, and as soon as he would get off the bus, he would run over, and he had his pit, and then he would just dig and dig and put it and then put it back in every day, just that cycle, because he just needed to, to move and to dig and to get his hands dirty. And so we see that's what God's, God's doing there. All right, so let's look at uh, what he gives them. Now let's look at what God gives them in verse 15 and verse 16. 
Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So the two things he's meant to do is to work and to keep, or to cultivate, to serve, to till, to expand, to extend. These are things he's supposed to kind of actively do, to form, to create. But then also to keep, to watch, to preserve, to protect, to take care of, to defend. And what you can see in chapter 2 is really gardening is kind of the paradigm for work. So what do you do when you garden? You don't, you don't destroy the land. You're trying to cultivate it. Love Tim Keller's definition of what is, what is the kind of work we see here. It's where you're rearranging the raw material of a particular domain to draw out its potential for flourishing. Um, you don't destroy it. You develop it. So you can think kind of in any sphere, <clears throat> like you have music. What are you doing when you're making music? You're taking the raw materials of sound and trying to reform them, refashion them, uh, remake them so something meaningful and beautiful and harmonious comes out. What do you do when you're building anything? Construction. That's taking the raw materials of the world and forming things. What do you do when you're writing? Taking the raw materials of letters and words and you're forming them into something that gives a uh, description and meaning, um, <clears throat> all these different things. So the purpose, purpose of our work is uh, creative energy in the service of others. Now, if you get your theology of work from Genesis chapter 2, you're probably going to be on a collision course with our world. Because this is not the primary way you just make money. It's not the primary way you have status. It's not the primary way you do things. And my sister, when she was going through law school, one of the things that really struck her is how few people in law school actually cared about justice. So, well, like, if you don't care about justice, why are you here? And the reason why they're here is for the status or for the money. So you can think about, like, what's it actually for? So one thing you can say, all right, what's wrong with the world? Well, one of the things wrong with the world is why we work. And in Genesis chapter 2, that gives us a picture of how we were made to work and what we were made to do. Now, skipping over to Genesis chapter 3. So this is the house he builds, the job he gives us. But then Genesis chapter 3 starts to move into the mess that we've made or the mess we make. And we can see here the seeds of all three areas of God's house that are getting stained. You know, worship in the garden, our relationship with God gets broken, community with one another gets broken, our mission and labor in the land gets cursed. So last week we looked in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, how Satan comes in. Now let's pick up the story again in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths or coverings. You know, in many ways, just in this verse, you have the history of the world. Sin enters, shame follows, and then the attempt to hide and cover. And can you imagine when it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened? I wonder what that was like. Have you ever had a moment where just something... Maybe good, you know, talk about moments of epiphany where the light dawns. You know, think about the first time when our oldest daughter, the first time she got her shots, 
you know, and she's like two or three, and we, you know, we kind of coax her into this unfamiliar place, and she's already nervous, and we feel terrible because we're, oh, you know, trying to pretend like nothing bad is going to happen, and then trying to, you know, catch her attention, and she's looking over here and kind of laughing, and then, you know, behind her back, the doctor pulls in, and in my mind, it's like this four-foot syringe, and just inserts it into her arm, and then that, that moment when the pain just hits. And you feel terrible as a parent, but it's for their good. But that moment of awakening. I heard a story about Michael Hyatt, who's an author, and he was telling the story about how on, it was like their 20th wedding anniversary, him and his wife were out somewhere like the Bahamas, and they were doing, you know, on a cruise and doing one of those excursions, and they were going to do this stand-up paddle boarding for the morning. And they were having this wonderful time all together, and they're paddle boarding, and then all of a sudden they kind of look up and realize it looks like they are miles from the shore. And it's that, uh-oh. How are we going to get back? And here's that, uh-oh. Their eyes are opened, and they know now we have something to hide, something to cover. And, you know, we all know this. We all know that deep down there's something to hide. I remember being, I don't know if plagued is the right word, but being caused nightmares when I was a kid at a, a revival meeting and the person who was leading the revival meeting was talking about that we're going to stand before God. And he's got this plug that he can plug into your head and then all of your thoughts will be projected onto a screen. And even as a six-year-old, that terrified me to think about. Now, I don't know. I don't think that's actually going to happen, kids, so don't... Uh, <laughs> But even as a six-year-old, you know there's things that we hide to try and cover. You know, we're all, we're all hiders. Flannery O'Connor, you know, she's a brilliant, brilliant writer, but had different kind of physical uh, disabilities. Um, she grew up in the middle uh, Milledgeville, Georgia area in the 1950s. Um, you know, not the best time or place to be a little awkward or different. And she was never one of the cool kids. And she used to think about how when she was in high school, you know, all the pretty, you know, beboppity blonde cheerleaders would say things that would just be ignorant and obnoxious. And she, she was very sharp. And then she would hear them. And then she would say something that would just savagely cut them down and make fun of them, and they wouldn't even know they were being made fun of. And they just sit there kind of like, oh, we cook cow-eyed, just staring at her. And then in her journal, she would come home and write, like, why do I do that? Like, why do I say those things? And even as a 16-year-old, she says, if I'm honest in that moment, it makes me feel beautiful. And so she's trying to hide, trying to cover, trying to strike another to turn attention from herself. So we hide and cover and then notice the effects, how God then comes to him. And these are the three things we're going to unpack for the rest of the month. Um, God comes when, the, when they heard in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So they were in his presence and now they're hiding. From the Lord God among the trees of the garden... But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to his serpent, and then the whole series of curses come down on the serpent, on his work, on, on their labor. So all of the blessings in Genesis 2 have now come, become cursed. And what we'll see is a cycle where their relationship with God is broken, and then that in turn fuels relationship with others is now broken. And then their relationship with the world is now broken. The seeds have been set about God's, all three areas of God's world now experience dislocation, experience brokenness. And the question is, all right, how can we make those things right? How do we get back into God's presence? How can we heal our home and communities? And then how can we uh, serve uh, the world in the way that we are meant to? But here in verse 8 to 10, and in 24, you get some hints of the victory. You get some hints of how he's going to bring about the restoration. You know, there's a couple things he does. Um, actually, flip down to verse 20. Then the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. So there's three things he does. First, he's the one who seeks. He goes after them, and then he asks, and then he makes. He covers. He seeks, he asks, he covers. Verse 8 through 10, they weren't seeking God. They were hiding. But God is going to go after them. We hide, he seeks. And then as he asks questions, and it's always a marvel, like why does God question them? He knows the answer. He's asking them questions, not because he needs the information, but because he's treating them like adults. This, in essence, is an intervention. And notice the question is not, what did you do? It's, where are you? It's a relational question. You're not here. We're not close. Where are you? And then he makes, he makes garments for them. He's going to bring about the healing. So what we're going to unpack is how does God's healing come to us? He can heal our work, and then he can heal our world, but it all begins when he heals our worship, our relationship to him. Notice what he does in verse 24. Then he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So he put them out. And then, so they get put out of the garden. They're still in Eden, but they're put out of the garden. So now they can't come back into God's presence. And then there's a flaming sword, a cherubim, that's going to turn in every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And you can see that as long as Adam walked blamelessly, as long as he was pure, he could dwell with God. The reason why he was ultimately made. He could have communion with God. He could walk with God. They could dwell together. But when sin entered into the garden, God could not dwell where sin was. 
And when Adam fell, God drove him and Eve out of the garden, and he placed in the east. You have to come back into through the east. That's why in the tabernacle, the door is always facing east, and the temple, it always faced east. You have to come back through the east. And he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that's turning in every direction. And so what does that sword mean? What does it represent? That fiery sword represents God's holiness. You know, he appeared to Moses as fire. He appeared in the temple and tabernacle as fire in between the cherubim uh, in the tabernacle, in between the cherubim on the ark. And the sword is turning every way. There's no path back in. There's no secret access that some guru can tell you how to get in. There's no back door that if you have the secret knock that it'll be open to you. There's no VIP red carpet that's for the famous or the beautiful or the important people to come and everybody else has to wait this line. There's no fast pass that you can jump back into. It's no matter how, if Adam would have been there for a thousand years, no matter how he would have tried, how narrow, how steep, how difficult, how silently he would have crept along, he could have not got back in. Every way back in would have been met with the flaming sword. And so this is the ultimate question of what's wrong with the world. The question is, how can we be right with God? How can we get back into his presence? And God in his mercy has made a way to get back in. You know, Psalm 16, David knows this, and he says, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. How can I get back in? Is there a path that will lead me back in? In the Old Testament, God in his mercy, he made a way uh, back in, but it was very temporary, and it had to do with different sacrifices. But then ultimately there comes another that he sends. And one who cries out, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, God in his mercy and goodness had pity on us, knowing that there's no pathway back in. But knowing this is what we were made for. This is what we were created for. And Jesus, being rich in mercy and having pity for us, stepped out of heaven, made himself nothing, took on the form of the servant and humbled himself. And then he walked up to that flaming sword. And what did he do? Did he just command it, get out of the way? Did he snap his fingers so it would melt like wax? No. That would dishonor his father's justice and not ultimately solve the problem. But he went in our place and he stood and he allowed that flaming sword. He opened up his arms so that it would be bathed in his blood. And so a way could be made uh, open and that we could get back in. And on the cross, the tree of death now becomes the pathway back to the tree of life. The way that had been shut up has been opened back up again. And the way we enter now is through repentance and faith. The way we get back in is by when we're asked the question, what's wrong with the world? We say, I am. That's repentance. And what is faith? What's right with the world? He is. You are. So we say to God, what's right? And so we trust in him to make us right and to make it right. So don't try and forge your own way back in. Don't try and discover your own path. No one can get back in but through him. And every week we celebrate communion and our communion is our weekly reminder and celebration that this is the way that has been opened so that we can enter back in. 
You know, the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body that's going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This represents, it's symbolic of representing my blood that will go under that sword to open up a way so now you can have access back into his presence, back into the garden, so you can uh, experience what you were made for.